Alright guys, welcome to the seventh episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I interview Dr. Tom O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien is a world expert in gluten sensitivity and everything related to gluten. So in this episode, we talked about gluten. And everything and every symptom that can be associated with it. It was an extremely informative interview, so I really hope you enjoyed the information. Okay, uh, Dr. Tom O'Brien, um, as with all my guests, it's an honour to have you on my podcast. Um, just for people who aren't too familiar with who you are and your background, just uh, fill us in. Okay, uh, well, let's see. I came out in practice in 1980, and um, uh, let's see, uh, with respect to the conversation we're having today, uh, I heard a uh, presentation um by a neurologist named David Perlmutter, a friend and a very wise functional medicine-oriented neurologist who presented a paper on uh, 10 patients with unrelenting migraines. And the migraines were so severe that they were unable to work for an average of eight years. They had been out of work for an average of eight years. And that really caught my attention. Uh, for some reason I started thinking what about the children in those families Mm. Uh, what's it like to live in a household where dad hasn't worked for eight years I'm sure he's not a very happy man and many times it might be quiet dad's got a headache quiet Mm. and I'm Mm. sure these families some of them may have uh, uh, gone through their life savings Uh, they've gone through their retirement accounts they were just surviving on workman's compensation I made a story up in my mind just imagining what the impact might be well, Dr. Perlmutter presented this paper of these 10 cases, and they were all referred to a neurologist who checked them for gluten sensitivity, not celiac disease, gluten sensitivity. They all had gluten sensitivity. He put them on a gluten-free diet. Seven out of 10 never had a headache again. Two out of 10 got partial relief, and the 10th one refused the diet. Mm. So that caught my attention, and um, I ordered that paper. That paper was published in 2001 in the journal Neurology. And uh, I read that paper, and then I looked at the references in the back and ordered those and started reading those, and I've been going ever since. And uh, uh, I've been uh, teaching about gluten sensitivity. In 2004, I said, you know, this information is so important, and doctors don't know this. My associates don't know this. People I meet don't know this. Um, We need to get this word out. So I made a declaration that I was going to start to carry the word out about gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and publishing papers and writing articles and speaking on it. I've been doing so ever since. <clears throat> Great stuff, Dr. Tom. How, how do you find doctors react to, um, to your information? Like when you say, you know, if you say to a doctor, you know, it could be gluten, and they're like, nah, no, it's not, gluten's not that serious. Like, how, like how, how, do you, how, do you, um, how do you deal with that initial reaction from doctors? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, and it depends on where I'm meeting them. If they're in my seminar, um, it's a slam dunk. Their jaw drops in the first five minutes, and they they do an OMG. I've got a daughter, a thirty year old daughter, that says, "Dad, you you know, I I try to be cool once in a while." And she says, "Dad, you are not cool. Just give it up, please. You are not cool." So these doctors will do it, and oh my gosh, that they had no idea in the first five minutes, and then they're captive for the rest of the day in my eight-hour seminar, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this story. 
it takes about three minutes to tell you the story, but it sets the tone hmm. for this discussion. Um, I got a phone call one day that my godmother was being rushed to the hospital. And I said, what's wrong, what's wrong? And they said, we don't know, some kind of stomach pain. And her history at that time was she was 82 years old. She'd only been in the hospital twice in her life, once for a pregnancy delivery, for the normal delivery, and once for a car accident in her 60s where she broke a hip. She was in the hospital for a week with that broken hip 20 years earlier. Never been on any medications except for pain medication when she broke her hip for about a year. No other medications. Every year she'd go to her doctor for a physical and her doctor would say, Emily, you're as healthy as a horse, but you have to give up drinking. And it was because she had mildly elevated liver enzymes. And as all doctors know, patients often come in, you run a standard blood test on them, and they've got mildly elevated liver enzymes and there's no other indicator of a problem going on. And so doctors just watch it and they wait and see if it becomes a problem or not. So he would say that to her and she would look him in the eye and say, I don't drink. And she doesn't drink. Uh, um, it was the joke of our family. I'm, I'm from an Italian family, and mm -hmm. at weddings, you know, we'd all toast the bride and the groom, and we'd all lift our glass, and my Aunt Emily would lift a glass of water and toast and have as much love and compassion for the bride and groom as we all did. And, and then we'd joke with her, say, hey, Emily, what are you doing in this room? You're not one of us. You aren't drinking champagne. You don't drink vino. You, you, you need to leave. And we tease her because it was obvious to us that she doesn't drink. Next year, she'd go in for a physical, and Dr. said, Emily, you're as healthy as a horse, but you have to give up drinking. And she said, what's the matter with you? I told you last year, I don't drink. And that's how she would talk to her doctor. And, uh, uh, and he'd smile and shrug a little bit and then go on with something else because he didn't know what to do for mildly elevated liver enzymes with no other indicators of a liver problem. So... She's rushed to the hospital, and we find out, um, uh, the ER finds out that she has 4% uh, of her liver left functioning, that 96% of her liver was sclerosed. Oh that means God. it's all scar tissue in there, 96%, and she never had any symptoms. Now, we know that mildly elevated <laughs> liver enzymes, that liver enzymes are a measure of dead liver cells. And we all have dead liver cells. Yeah, we all do. And there's, we lose some every day, and you make some every day. And the goal is that you don't lose more than you make. Mm -hmm. And so there's a level of enzymes that's normal, that everybody has a little bit of this going on. It's, it's how we keep healthy bodies. You lose some cells, you make more cells. When you have mildly elevated liver enzymes, you're losing the function of more cells than you're making. And she had mildly elevated liver enzymes for years, slowly sclerosing her liver, slowly making its scar tissue in there, year after year after year after year, until, and she had no symptoms, until she had only 4% of her liver left functioning. Now, all the blood in the body goes through the liver. All the blood in the body. And now all the blood in the body is going through 4% of the liver. Mm -hmm. But that 4% of the liver is designed to handle... 4% of the blood, not 100% of the blood. So what happens in an 82-year-old woman when these blood vessels that are only supposed to handle 4% of the blood in the body are having to handle 100% of the blood in the body? These blood vessels swell, they engorge, and in an old person, they burst. And she, she had severe abdominal pain from internal bleeding. Oh, oh, my stomach. 
They rush to the hospital. They find out she's got internal bleeding from a ruptured blood vessel in her liver. They do emergency surgery. They save her life. And her doctor says, we don't know why you've got this. Well, in the next eight weeks, she had six more emergency surgeries because the blood vessels keep breaking. Mm. What are you going to do? The blood's going through the liver. And she's only got 4% of her liver left. And they're not going to give her a new liver. She's 82 years old. If she were 42, that might be different. But they're not going to waste a liver transplant on an 82-year-old woman. Finally, after two months and six surgeries, the doctor says, Emily, make your peace. Go home. She said, there, there, he said, there's no more we can do for you. And she said, how long do I have? He said, we don't know, two weeks, two months. Well, after the first surgery, I called my knee, uh, my uh, uh, cousin, her daughter, mm -hmm. and said, Cindy, have this test done. And it was a blood test for celiac disease to look at transglutaminase and deaminated gliadins. And she said, why would I do that? And I said, because this might be a trigger that may have caused part of your mom's problem as soon as I heard that it was uh, a sclerosis liver. A couple weeks later, they're going through this crisis of recurring bursting liver blood vessels, and I call Cindy back and say, Cindy, what happened? And she said, oh, uh, oh Tommy, you can call me Tommy, said, I talked to the doctor, and he said, you're probably a nice man, but you really don't know what you're talking about. And I said, really? I would have liked to have had a few words with that doctor. <laughs> uh, and then, and I talk about this in the my introduction to my seminar, and mm -hmm, I say mm -hmm. to, to all the doctors in the room, and I say one of the things I would have liked to have said was, "Doctor, you're a hepatologist. That's a liver specialist. You ever read the journal Hepatology? Did you read it in November of 2007? The article that said the liver in celiac disease, where they say mildly elevated liver enzymes may be the only indicator." of celiac disease. No abdominal complaints, no stomach pain, just mildly elevated liver enzymes. Or that end-stage liver transplantation, in other words, the liver is so sclerosed they get new livers, may be caused by an allergy to gluten. Did you read that article, doctor? That's what I'd like to have said to this guy. Yeah, not bad. So, <clears throat> yeah, so, so after eight weeks, um, they send her home, um, so that's when I go to fly to Pittsburgh to say goodbye to my godmother because the next time her vessel bursts she'll be gone you know, it won't be long, you know, take a few minutes and she'll bleed out and there's nothing they can do about that well I stayed three days and have you ever tried to say goodbye to someone you know is going to die who is relatively healthy I mean tired from six surgeries in two months but mm -hmm. clear minded and and someone that's known you longer than you've known you. I mean, it was very, very difficult. And I woke up one morning. I get up early every morning. I woke up one morning and went out in the living room, and she's sitting in the living room. I said, Emily, what are you doing up so early? She said, I can't sleep. I said, lay down. She said, I'm too old for you. <laughs> <laughs> that was my 82-year-old godmother. And I immediately responded, I know, I know, but if I can't have your body, I want your blood. Lay down. <laughs> And I had brought a barrel and the needle and the tube. I drew her blood. And I called the laboratory and said, this is Dr. O'Brien from Chicago. Come get this blood now. They came and got the blood. And they ran the test. She's a celiac patient. So I had a meeting with my family that night. I had her two daughters come over. And we had a meeting. And I showed them the test results. 
I showed them the article from the Journal of Hepatology because I had my laptop computer with me. Mm-hmm. I said, Emily, this is likely what caused your problem because you've got a very good hepatologist surgeon who said he doesn't know why this happened. It just happens sometimes. Well, that's not true. It's true that he doesn't know, but it doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why it happens. And here's the article from Mayo Clinic. This article published in Hepatology is from Mayo Clinic saying mildly elevated liver enzymes may be the only indicator of celiac disease in some people, like you. So, Aunt Emily, I don't know how long you've got left. It might be two weeks, it might be two months, I don't know. Uh, But I can guarantee you, whatever length of time you have left, you're going to feel much better if you never eat wheat again, ever. And she said, okay, okay. My godmother did not live two weeks. She didn't live two months. She left a, lived a year and a half a year and a half at home. Now she was weak because she'd been through six surgeries and she knew she couldn't move around very much, but she was at home. And the family was there every day. I've got a large family in uh, Pittsburgh and there was always somebody there uh, with her, you know, laughing and joking and talking about the day-to-day things that happen in life, who they're upset with, what's going on. Uh, But there was someone there every day, every day, at least one or two or three people every day for a year and a half. And then I got a uh, message that said, uh, uh, any day now, Tommy, any day. So I flew back to Pittsburgh. I, f- I flew back to Pittsburgh and um, uh, to see my godmother, and uh, she weighed 56 pounds. Whoa. 56 pounds. Now, advanced liver cirrhosis often progresses to liver cancer. It did for her. Mm-hmm. Liver cancer often progresses to brain cancer. It did for her. But she didn't have any symptoms. She wasn't on any medication for a year and a half. She was very tired, but no other symptoms for a year and a half. She was gluten free. But the cancer ate away at her, and she was down to 56 pounds. I sat by the side of her bed and just cry. Mm-hmm. I just put my head in her lap, you know, and I haven't talked about this in a while and I can just feel it now that, you know, she mm-hmm. runs her fingers through my hair as I'm sobbing with my head in her lap. Mm-hmm. This is my godmother. And I lift my head up and um, look her in the eye and she's crying also and she looks at me and she says, thank you, Tommy. Thank you. Because she had a year and a half with the family and she knew why this had happened to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she got this fire in her eye, Robbie. She got this fire in her eye and said, You tell him, Tommy. You tell him. And I said, I will, Aunt Emily. I will. (laughs) So that's why I'm talking to you today. That's Mm why um, I'm on the lecture circuit full time. That's why I travel the world talking about this to all the doctors and the general public groups that will listen because this will kill you, yeah. and you'll never know. You'll never know. Your death certificate will say liver cancer, and it should say liver cancer secondary to celiac disease, or Alzheimer's, or it'll say cardiovascular disease, heart attack, and it should say Alzheimer's secondary to celiac disease, or heart attack, myocardial infarction secondary to celiac disease, because for a vast majority of the people, 
Robbie, you pull in a chain, the chain breaks at the weakest link. Mm -hmm. It's at one end, the middle, the other end, wherever the weak link is, that's where it's going to break. Mm -hmm. And that's your body. The weak link may be your head, your brain, your liver, your kidneys, your muscles, your bones. And the pull on the chain is what we eat when we eat foods that cause inflammation. Now, it happens that gluten is the most common food that people are allergic to on the planet today. So whenever someone who's sensitive to gluten eats gluten, you're pulling at the chain. And then depending on where your genetic weak link is and what your lifestyle of experiences have been, it's called antecedents, so it's dependent upon your genetics and your antecedents, that's where you're going to get the symptoms. That's why there's 18,000 articles in the medical literature on celiac disease. They're with kidney problems, gallbladder problems, liver problems, eye problems, brain problems, bone problems, muscle problems, heart problems, skin problems. It goes on and on and on. There's no system of the body that may not be affected by an allergy to gluten. It just depends on where it's going to manifest, determined by your genetics and your weak link. It's just, it's, it's unreal because when you first hear about gluten, you just think, ah, oh, it's, it's just your GI tract like, and I believe you said that, I, I can't remember the figure, but you were saying nearly everyone that had some sort of sensitivity to gluten, only, only a small percentage of them had like uh, gastrointestinal problems, you were like, the rest of them were all, you know, like, you know, uh, headaches and mental issues and uh, all, all the issues you just mentioned just there, so it's just... It's just unreal, like, when you first hear that first time, you're like, oh, my God, like, this this can really, you know, as you said, kill you. This will take you down. That's right. And, and you'll, you'll never know what took you down. You think you got old, or you think, oh, you know, it's my brain. I'm just getting older. You know, I, I don't remember the way I used to. Ha, ha. Oh, really? How old are you? Well, 42. And no, it's not your brain. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, every, every, like, I'm, I'm the same, Dr. Tom, in that... I I, so, I hate when people say that oh, I'm getting old and it's just like no you're you're like you're you're you know you you're feeding your body crap you know what I mean you're you don't exercise you don't you don't you don't take time out but like you know and uh, like the number one thing as I said like it's just like the nutrition you're putting into your body it's just like you know you're just putting all this crap into your body like how do you think you're gonna feel like it's not you know f like people think that fifty and sixty are old like I mean humans should be living so much longer and so much healthier it's just it's just crazy like you know and it's in a way it's so hard to like just you just want to grab people by the collar and say look just like listen to this guy or read this article or watch this dvd like listen to these people like these people know what they're talking about but it's just there's just so many people to help and there's just not enough time and just some people well, it's, even it's, um, it's uh it's it's people like you doing these blogs that gets the message out to the common common folk mm. and that's where this has to be done you know that it's uh, people have to take ownership for themselves that they're not going to accept the way their body's functioning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, if if you need medications, you take medication. Don't ever be stupid about this. Mm -hmm. But why do you need the medication? Exactly. That's the question. What's not functioning properly? Mm -hmm. And then once you identify, then you get on track to fix that problem, mm -hmm. so that you may require less medication in your life. Here's an example: fifty percent of children with drug-resistant epilepsy. What that means is that the child has been to usually two or three different neurologists, the parents have taken them, these ch children are having seizures, and they've tried a number of different drugs and the drugs don't work. That's called drug-resistant epilepsy. 50% of these kids go into complete remission on a gluten-free diet, meaning they never have a seizure again. 
50% of them. Not just 1% or 2%, 50%. Every neurologist should know this. Mm. Every child that has seizures should be checked for gluten sensitivity. Everyone. If they have it, you recommend a gluten-free diet. If they don't have it, you say, okay, that's off the checklist. Let's look at the next thing. Do Dr. Tom, do you think it's an ignorance on doctors that they just don't research? Or do you think that the bigger people, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, etc., just don't want that information to get out there because it would end up, end up costing them so much more money, you know, because the, well, the drugs wouldn't sell that, then? Right, that's a really good question, and I don't believe that there's a major conspiracy to bury the data. It's easily accessible. Mm -hmm. However, the education system uh, for our, our doctors, such that it's very dependent on... Uh, a pharmaceutical approach to addressing symptoms. Mm -hmm. the, um, the Dean of Medicine at Stanford, did, Stanford Medical School, um, did the uh, uh, commencement address, the graduating class a few years ago, and his remarks were, were printed in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what he said was, you are some of the best trained physicians in the world. You are able to diagnose whatever walks into you. Any, any crisis that comes in, you are the best trained physicians in the world, some of the very best. And I have to apologize to you for your education. Because 78% of what will come into your office is chronic disease, mm -hmm. not acute crisis. Mm -hmm. You are very well trained in acute crisis. We haven't trained you at all in chronic disease. So for 78% of what comes in, you don't know what to do. I apologize to you. So that was a very courageous thing to do, to, to, to give that type of a presentation, because hopefully that graduating class would, um, said, well, I better learn a little more about this thing called chronic disease, mm -hmm. which is diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart attack. Nobody gets a heart attack two days after a problem begins. People get heart attacks after 20, 30, 40 years of having problems. Nobody gets Alzheimer's in their 70s. People get Alzheimer's in their 20s and 30s. It just takes 30 or 40 years of slowly killing off brain cells before you start getting symptoms. Just like my godmother. She had 96% of her liver killed off before she ever knew she had a problem. Mm -hmm. That was going on for years and years and years. That's called chronic disease. Yet we go to the doctor with an acute situation and the hepatologist saved her life, which is wonderful. But... Her family physician, for the many, many years she was getting physicals, told she's as healthy as a horse, ignored or didn't know what to do with the mildly elevated liver enzymes. I, I absolutely love what you said there because that's what I'm always trying to get across to people. You know, people always go, oh, but I feel fine, I feel fine. I'm like, yeah, but it's an accumulation effect. It's, it's, it, it's not going to happen overnight. It's years of abusing your body with whatever substance or whatever chemical that it is whether it's gluten or whether it's alcohol or whether it's smoking or it's always an accumulation effect it's, it's a chronic health issue yeah and I, I completely agree but just I, I just want to say one thing too <clears throat> I, I'm not one of these people who completely and I don't think you are either because you just made the point that completely bashes like you know uh, allopathic medicine it does have its place but as you say like it, it's it's the chronic issues that doctors should really be educated on, not just the acute. Like intelligent allopathy is okay, but at the end of the day, you always need to look for the underlying cause, and that is the problem with the with the with Western medicine, definitely. That's exactly right, and people don't know how to do that, and they need physicians who are trained 
in doing that. Mm. That's a critical critical component. And um, people should have a healthcare team, not just a medical doctor. Mm. They should have a medical doctor, a massage therapist, a chiropractor, perhaps an acupuncturist, perhaps an osteopath, uh, um, perhaps a psychologist, a healthcare team mm, mm. to keep their body functioning well. You don't take your car to a transmission place to change the radiator. You know that you you need to have a team of mechanics depending on what the problem is. Now you have a one mechanic who usually can fix most things in a car. That's like a general practitioner or a family doctor. But unfortunately, the analogy stops there, that you don't just replace a radiator. Sometimes you go to a radiator specialist and he knows how to fix that one, and you save yourself $300 and you don't need a new radi radiator. You just have to fix the hole that's in the one you've got. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's funny you mentioned about the elevated liver enzymes because I have a friend currently in medical school and I, and I actually said this to him after I watched your DVD and listened to your interview with Sean Croxton and I said to him, did you know elevated liver enzymes are, are a sign of uh, gluten sensitivity? And he goes, oh, we're, 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 we're only ever told that that's to do with al alcoholism or alcoholics like and I was like, God, oh, like Right, like, right, now, now you, have, you have to be careful in your language. Elevated liver enzymes are not an indicator of celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Elevated liver enzymes may be an indicator of gluten sensitivity. Mm -hmm. You have to be careful when, when you talk to healthcare practitioners. You can't sound fanatic or yeah. totalitarian in, mm -hmm. in your language. Mm -hmm. Dr. O'Brien, just for anyone listening, because I know when I first heard about gluten and celiac disease and all these certain other problems that can happen from gluten sensitivity, what is gluten? Gluten, uh, and uh, it's... That's a good question. Uh, gluten is a family of proteins that is in almost all grains. So it's a misnomer to say gluten sensitivity. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, it's like saying, um, uh, uh, handing something to a secretary and saying, here, please Xerox this. Yeah, and yeah. Xerox is the name of a company, but it's been so associated with copy machines, now the word Xerox has come to mean copy this. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened with gluten. So it's really not gluten sensitivity, it's the toxic family of gluten's sensitivity. That there's one family of glutens that's in wheat, rye, and barley, and all of their derivatives, that's really the problem. Mm -hmm. I'm <clears throat> but gluten is not only in, like when people think gluten, they think grains and bread, but it's also in a lot of processed foods as an emulsifier, that's true? That's true. It's used as a filler, as an emulsifier. It's it's in soy sauce. Um, it's in a lot of cosmetics. It's in a lot of medications. Um, uh, if you're gluten sensitive, it's really a, a journey and a battle to find where are all the sources of gluten coming from in your life. It's the hidden sources. Where are they? Where are they coming from? Mm -hmm. uh, it it takes a while to identify all of them. Is there certain um, food additive names that gluten is under? Like I believe is it cornstarch? Is that is actually gluten? Like is, or they, like there's some names in processed foods like you know they have cornstarch or emulsifier or, or certain other names that but really it's just gluten but they name it something else. Well, yeah, there are and um, uh, cornstarch as an example. Sometimes they'll add gluten to the cornstarch mm. and they don't list it. They add wheat gluten to it because there's gluten in corn. Mm -hmm. But the gluten in corn is not toxic to most people. I mean, people can be allergic to anything. So you may be allergic to tomatoes. You may be allergic to corn. 
but the the gluten of corn is not toxic for most people. The toxic family of glutens is wheat, rye, and barley, and you can find lists of the hidden sources of that online. There's a really good website called celiac.com, C-E-L-I-A-C, celiac.com, and they've got lists of the different food sources, the different cosmetics um, uh, that may have uh, gluten in them. <clears throat> You said cosmetics there, Dr. Tom. Like, why would gluten be in a cosmetic? It's a filler. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the main reason is a filler. Uh, also as an emulsifier, also as a binder. Uh, that it, it's, Gluten means glue. And so it's a glue-like substance that holds things together. It's cheap. It's, it's um, easily accessible for manufacturers to play with as they're trying to make their, their product um, achieve the results they want uh, outside of the baking industry. Um, uh, it's in shampoos. Why it's in shampoo, I don't know, but it is. <laughs> um, in your DVD, Dr. Tom, uh, you spoke about um, the, the, the gluten in shampoo, and you were saying that the experts, or I don't know, whoever is an expert in shampoo, but they said that it wouldn't get through the, your skin of your scalp, but you said you would inhale it. Could you, could you just explain how that could be very damaging? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the celiac experts will say cosmetics cannot uh, permeate through the skin. Uh, the molecules are too big to get through the skin or through the scalp to get into the bloodstream and cause a problem. And that's true. That's very true. But you breathe it. You inhale it. And when you breathe it, there, there are a number of papers that show you can trigger an immune reaction from inhaling gluten. So you want to make sure if you have a gluten sensitivity, you don't use shampoos that have gluten. You don't use cosmetics that have gluten. Uh, you don't use perfumes that have gluten because you may inhale some of the proteins of gluten that way. Is there and any... It will, oh, go, go, it, go ahead. It will trigger an immune response. Is there any resources for, for people, uh, like websites, where they could go see what products gluten is in? Yes, uh, celiac.com is such a site. Oh, has it has that as well? That's brilliant, brilliant. Um, Doctor Tom, you spoke about the problems with with doctors testing for celiac disease. C can you just um, ex um, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Expand, expand on that. Yes, yes. The um, um, I call it the conundrum of gluten sensitivity. People suspect they they have a sensitivity to wheat. They go to their doctor. Their doctor does a celiac blood test. It comes back negative. That's, no, it's fine. It's okay for you to eat wheat. But the, the person knows when they eat wheat, they don't feel as good as when they stop eating wheat. But the blood test was negative, so most people rationalize, well, even though I feel better without it, I, I'm going to eat it because I like having my pie or my cakes or my sandwiches, whatever. But Because the, the doctor said it was okay. We put so much faith in the doctor. The problem is the blood tests for celiac disease are extremely accurate extremely sensitive. It's called sensitivity and specificity. They're right up there at the top, at the very top, 95, 98%. If you have the end stage of celiac disease where your gut is all chewed up and worn down, that's called total villus atrophy. If you have total villus atrophy, the blood tests are very accurate. But if you've only got partial villus atrophy or it hasn't gotten so severe yet, the blood test can be wrong seven out of ten times and give you false negatives when there really is a problem but it says there's no problem and that's very very common thousands of people have had that experience where their celiac test came back negative but when they go off gluten they feel better 
and, and it's the conundrum. A laboratory opened last year, in January of last year, just one year ago, Cytrex. called Cyrex, C-Y-R-E-X, and their website is cyrexlabs.com. Mm -hmm. They do a panel of um, antibodies where you don't get false negatives anymore. For, for example, um, the protein in wheat that's checked by every laboratory, you know, the, the gluten protein in wheat is called gliadin. Now, let's back up and talk about what, what happens with gluten. If you imagine protein to be like a brick wall, and um, digestion, so you, you eat the sandwich, and there's proteins in the bread, digestion is taking the mortar off the bricks, off the brick wall, so you can take the bricks and lay them down side by side, they're not all stuck together. That's what our digestive enzymes do in our stomach and in our small intestine. Then those, those individual bricks are called amino acids, and they get absorbed into the bloodstream. And then our body uses those amino acids to make new muscle, to make new bone, to make new hair. Um, all of the cells that our bodies make every day make new liver cells. What happens when you have a gluten sensitivity is as if someone took a sledgehammer to the brick wall and broke it into pieces instead of individual bricks. But now, now you've got a clump of 33 bricks laying there, a clump of 17 bricks, a clump of 11 bricks laying there. And those are the toxic peptides of gluten because our body's not designed to be exposed to those kinds of foods. We're supposed to get each individual brick called amino acids into our body. Now you've got these toxic clumps called peptides. The most toxic peptide of gluten is called gliadin, and it's 33 amino acids long. And that is the test that every laboratory uses as one of the three tests to look for celiac disease, is to look at gliadin antibodies. The problem is 50% of the celiac patients that have advanced celiac disease where their gut is all chewed up, 50% of those patients don't have a problem with gliadin. There's no elevated antibodies to gliadin in the blood test. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't make any sense because we know celiac disease is, in, is from eating wheat and you're sensitive to wheat. Well, how come the, the immune system's not fighting the wheat? It's because that those other 50% of the people that don't react to gliadin react to different clumps of bricks, not just the 33 clump. They may be reacting to the 17 clump or to the 11 clump or the 9 clump of brick, but no one's ever tested it until now. It's unbelievable. No one's ever tested it because the papers on this, the research papers, started coming out in 1992. But no one's ever tested, no commercial laboratory's ever done this until now. Cyrex Labs looks at the top 10 peptides of gluten, not just 33 brick gliadin, they look at the top 10. The result is you don't get false negatives anymore. And it's a marvelous test. In this first year, thousands of people already have been identified who came back negative on the, the standard test. And they're identified as gluten sensitive. Now they say, oh darn, okay, I guess I have to go on a gluten-free diet, they get better. Their migraines go away. Their vision problems go away. Their fatigue goes away. Their liver problems go away. Their reproductive problems go away. Because now they have evidence that there's a problem. So humans, being the way that we are, we don't want to stop eating wheat unless we have to. 
but now they see they have to, and they do it, and they get better. <clears throat> Dr. Tom, how would you answer people that say, but weed is the staff of life, you know, the stuff, you know, it's in the Bible and all this kind of stuff. I know... Oh, that's, really, that's really a good, really good question. It comes up in every seminar. That's a really good question. And that's really um, not difficult to address. It's very simple. It's called the 50-50 rule. In the last 50 years, the gluten content of wheat has gone up by 50% Whoa. Because, of, because of hybridization. We've, we've created dwarf crops of wheat. Mm -hmm. We've created different strains of wheat that are more pest resistant, that produce more tonnage per acre. It's not the crop that was on the planet 2,000 years ago. With all due respect, with all due respect, no one on the planet is eating the wheat that Jesus Christ ate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not the same product, so don't you dare <laughs> tell people that the Bible says it's okay to eat this. No, mm -hmm. it doesn't. Mm -hmm. The Bible says it's okay to eat the bread that was on the planet 2,000 years ago. That bread's not here anymore. A, a great book on that is Wheat Belly by Dr. William Davis, and he really goes into depth about how we've mutated wheat, particularly in the last century. That's exactly right. It's an excellent book. Dr. Davis is to be commended for the research he did and the way that he writes. He's a very good writer, and it's an excellent book. Um, what was I going to ask there? Oh, yes, cross-reactivity, Dr. O'Brien. In, um, in Primal Body, Primal Mind by Nora Gagadish, she speaks about this cross-reactivity where you can get an allergy to another food source that... that was was kind of was it? I think she said you eat it, you eat it with something that contained gluten, so your body associates this food particle with gluten. So can you just explain cross reactivity? Yes, it's called molecular mimicry. Oh yeah. And what happens is that proteins are made up of amino acids, these bricks that I was um, talking about, um, and um, uh, the amino acids are a hundred, two hundred. Uh, the proteins are a hundred, two hundred amino acids long big long chains of amino acids put together in different sequences and let's just uh, let's the 33 brick uh, toxic amino acid complex of gluten gliadin that I spoke of earlier mm -hmm. let's just say those amino acids are A, A, B, C, D now it's 33 bricks long but I'm not going to do 33 letters let's just say A, A, B, C, D well when you look at the tissue of uh, uh, the amino acid structures of other tissue those proteins, proteins are made up of amino acids, the protein tissue of thyroid, which may be 150 amino acids long, includes AABCD as part of those 150 amino acids. So the immune system that's made antibodies to gliadin, now you've got these soldiers called antibodies going through the bloodstream looking for gliadin, AABCD, and anywhere they find it, they shoot it with these chemical bullets called cytokines. So they're looking for A, A, B, C, D. I call these soldiers, I, I give a visual to the audience, say, th think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, with his head out, up a sunroof, he's got a big submachine gun. Out in California, they call him the governator. And so he's out there, and he's firing chemical bullets anytime he sees A, A, B, C, D. Well, he's got these dark sunglasses on to look cool. And over <laughs> here on the far right, he sees A, A, B, C, D. So he fires this gun, the chemical bullets, at the thyroid because it's got AABCD. Mm -hmm. Now you damage the thyroid. And whenever you have damaged thyroid tissue, now your body's going to make antibodies to get rid of those damaged thyroid cells. Not a problem. We do that every day. That's not a problem. But when you have toast for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, pasta for dinner, 
bagel for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, lasagna for dinner, day after day after day, there's so many Arnold's out there doing A, A, B, C, D, your thyroid gets so damaged, now you start making antibodies to your thyroid, and now you've got um, a molecular mimicry where you now have an autoimmune condition attacking your thyroid. Mm. That's molecular mimicry. Now to your concept of cross-reactive foods, it's the very same in that there are amino acid sequences in some foods that look very similar to A, A, B, C, D. Take, for example, coffee. Now, not everyone is sensitive to coffee, but if you have a sensitivity to coffee and you drink coffee on a gluten-free diet, your body may think you're still eating gluten. And you keep making the antibodies and you keep having a lot of the same problems. So Cyrex Labs came out with a cross-reactive food panel. And it's 24 foods that they look at to see is there a sensitivity to some of these foods that may make you not get well on a gluten-free diet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Say you have someone who has gluten sensitivity, can they ever have gluten? No one knows. If you are a celiac, we know you can never have it again. You can't be a little pregnant, you can't have a little gluten for celiac. <laughs> that's, a great, that, that's a great saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For gluten sensitivity, no one knows yet because we've never been able to identify gluten sensitivity until now, mm. just in this last year. So what we're telling all of our patients is, test comes back positive, you go on a gluten-free diet, stay on a gluten-free diet six months to a year, and get the cross-reactive foods out of there also, go back and recheck the blood test, see that the antibodies have gone down to normal, then if you want to try eating gluten again, go ahead and try, and then you recheck the blood test to see did the immune system kick back up and you got antibodies again. If so, that means you can't have gluten. Mm -hmm. But nobody knows for sure. I think uh, another thing that, that I know when I heard this first, I was kind of like, oh really, that's, that's, that's how this is. Like people always think that celiac disease is, it just means you can't have gluten. Where as as you've often said, it's it's the reverse. Like gluten sense celiac is just one part of gluten sensitivity. So that's like, correct. It's it's that I always found when I heard that first time, I was like, oh my god! Like, can you just speak more about uh, gluten and maybe like mental health and other issues like that? Like you know, um, I think I think did you speak about like the ADD in children and and um, ch children with epilepsy that you said earlier on? Yes, yes. Um, there's a paper that came out of the Journal of Attention Disorders in 2006. They took 132 children who had been diagnosed as celiacs. They put them on a gluten-free diet. Every child or their parents commented that within six months there was improvement in every single marker. There's 12 markers for ADHD. There's 12 markers in the DSM-4 for ADHD every marker every child improved on a gluten-free diet can you how many children was in that study 132 and every single one of them improved every single one now if that had been a drug oh. it would have been on the front page of every paper around the world you can bet your lucky stars it would have been right but it's not a drug there's no profit to be made in this yeah, it's yeah. just a way of living life mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that that concept when, when you have gluten sensitivity, 73% of celiac patients have a lack of blood flow into the brain. It's called hypoperfusion. means low blood flow into the brain. Now, and the average is a third of the brain, one third of the brain. 
at any one time, 25% of all the blood in the body is in the brain. I mean, your, your, your brain is just using so much blood all the time. Mm -hmm. It's so active. 25% mm -hmm. of the blood goes to, is in the brain. <laughs> well, well some, some people's brains are active, Dr. Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 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 when you have hypoperfusion, a lack of blood flow, here's the importance to that. Cross your legs. Leave your leg like that for an hour. Keep your legs crossed for an hour. Stand up and try and run. Can't you fall on your face. Yeah. You can't run. You have to wait till blood gets back into your leg. Have toast for breakfast. And go off to school or go off to work to try to learn things and have your brain working well. There's not enough blood in there. It's not going to function. It's like you're firing on four cylinders and you're an eight-cylinder engine. Mm-hmm. That's why people, when they go on a gluten-free diet, the vast majority of people feel like, oh my gosh, someone turned the lights up. I feel so much brighter. My brain's working better. That's why. It's because they've got hypoperfusion. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about the, ad the addictive properties of gluten? Um, I believe that's in Dr. William Davis's book, and I think it's also in um, Norga Goddess's book and Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride's where they speak about the casomorphines and with, 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 with dairy and then the uh, glutomorphines with, with gluten. Yes, there are two of these morphine-like substances in wheat. Uh, there's gluteomorphins and prodynorphins. Mm -hmm. And remember I used the brick wall and they break into clumps? Mm -hmm. Some of the clumps are gluteomorphins or prodynorphins. They're these groups of amino acids that get absorbed in, and they're toxic and they're called dynorphins and gluteomorphins because they act like morphine. They bind to the opiate receptors in the brain and when they bind to the opiate receptors in the brain it's a feel-good feeling. It's, 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 it's like when you've had a deep, deep belly laughter and you laugh so hard it hurts your belly uh, and you just feel good afterwards. That's because you've produced the hormones in your brain called endorphins. Mm -hmm. Those endorphins bind to the receptor sites in the brain and they stimulate the receptor site. Feel good and we feel good. So when you eat wheat, if you get these gluteomorphins produced in your digestive tract, they go into your bloodstream and it, the message goes to your brain, feel good. Feel good, but not a problem. That's why people feel good sometimes when they eat wheat. But let's have toast for breakfast, pancakes for lunch, pasta for dinner, bagel for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, lasagna for dinner, croutons on the salad, piece of cake, cookies. And our bloodstream is swarmed with these gluteomorphins and prodynorphins every single day. The receptor site gets pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded. What happens after days and weeks and months and years of that pounding? The receptor site, it's called downregulated. It becomes downregulated. It means it doesn't work so well anymore. It becomes dulled. Then, then you need more. You need more of that substance to feel good again. That's why morphine is addictive. Is because you need more dosage to get the same result after a while, or alcohol, or any of the things that are addictive that way. So when people go on a gluten-free diet, some people have withdrawal symptoms. And so you want to make sure that the, doc, the doctor knows what to do to prevent that. That's why we have doctors that are trained. Um, my website is thedoctor.com, the dr.com. And we've trained doctors. There's about 200 doctors now around the country 
Uh, I don't think there's any in Ireland yet. There might be, but I don't think so. Um, they've been trained. They've been in my seminar, uh, and they've passed exams, and so they know what to do about this type of thing. But that's why there's a group in the U.S. called DAN, D-A-N, stands for Defeat Autism Now, and when doctors go to DAN conferences, they're always trained. There's a sequence of events you do with an autistic child to diagnose them and begin treating them. And the very first thing you do with these children in terms of treatment, you put them on a gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, sugar-free diet immediately. Immediately. Because it's so very common that those opiate receptor sites have been pounded and pounded and pounded. And you have to stop that in order to get that brain functioning better. Dr. Tom, can you speak about um, gluten-free products? Because I know there's people out there, um, particularly like gluten-free bread and all. This, And then you find these blueberry muffins that are gluten-free. You say, oh, how wonderful. I'm going to have one. And you say, oh, they're really good. So then you find that you're having a blueberry muffin every day. Maybe some days you're having two blueberry muffins a day. And where before you're having one or two a week. That's why people can gain weight on a gluten-free diet because they're eating more garbage. It's just gluten-free garbage. Mm-hmm. The other part to that is that many baked products nowadays and breads and things are enriched. Um, from a nutritional point of view, they're not very good, but they still have some vitamins and minerals in them compared to um, uh, uh, not having... White flour has no vitamins and minerals in it. Mm-hmm. Well, gluten, so if you stop eating those gluten-containing products that are enriched, and you begin substituting with gluten-free products that are not enriched, now you can develop even more insufficiencies and deficiencies um, uh, in terms of your vitamin and mineral status. So the best thing to do is don't eat very much of that stuff at all. Rather, you have lots of vegetables, colorful, five different colors, at least a pound a day for an adult of vegetables, some fruits, um, quality meats, not lunch meats, not inexpensive, cheap meats, but quality meats, and a little bit of rice, maybe a little bit of corn, you know, just a little bit, mostly vegetables and protein, and some eggs once in a while, um, that, that, and, and occasionally, you'd like have a blueberry muffin once a week, who cares, as long as it's gluten-free, but you can't eat that stuff every day. Yeah, just because it's gluten-free doesn't mean it's healthy. Do you think maybe uh, some vegetarians and vegans could have problems? Because they some, not all now, but they seem to 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 eat a lot of grains in their diet. You know, for um, thirty years, I've said this time and time and time again since I came out in practice, and and now now I finally understand why. I say some of the sickest people I see are vegetarians. That it's really difficult to be vegetarian. You can do it, but it takes a lot of work to do it properly. Well, one of the reasons that these people get so sick is because they eat so much more toxic gluten. Uh, and so their system, being gluten-sensitive or celiac, they respond that they get sicker because they're eating larger volumes of it to substitute for being vegetarian. Uh, and it's very difficult for them. It can be done, but it requires the expertise of a trained dietitian or nutritionist to walk you through how to do it. Dr. Tom, just for our, our audience that are listening, can you tell about the story about the nun? I thought that was incredible. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, sure. Um, this woman, 34-year-old woman, goes to a celiac specialty clinic and complains that she went to a, her doctor last year. He diagnosed that she was celiac. 
uh, put her on a gluten-free diet, and she wasn't any better. Now, the um, uh, until recently, the gold standard test was to get an endoscopy. Your intestines are a tube, 20-25 feet long. The inside of the tube is lined with shag carpeting. And this shag over here is where calcium is absorbed. The shag next to it may be magnesium. The shag over there is iron. The shag over here is the good oils. Shags over here absorb proteins, the B vitamins. All the shags absorb different nutrients. CVAC disease is when your shags wear down and you've got berber. And if you've got berber, you don't absorb calcium. You get osteoporosis. It's not rocket science. It's very simple can't absorb the nutrients, you're going to get the insufficiency, deficiency diseases. So this woman, um, she went to her initial doctor, they did the endoscopy, they saw that she had Berber. It's called to total villus atrophy. Mm -hmm. No shags left, no villi at all. They're gone. And she was osteoporotic. Her, her history was she was the shortest girl in the class growing up. She didn't get her menstrual cycle until a year and a half after everyone else did. Um, she had chronic fatigue her whole life. Um, she had mildly elevated liver enzymes, hair loss, um, uh, and osteoporosis. 34 years old, she had osteoporosis. Doctor told her go on a gluten-free diet. She did. She wasn't better, so she goes to a specialty clinic. They did the endoscopy. Still, she's got Marsh 3C, which is total villus atrophy. Um, still has osteoporosis. Her blood values are sky high, way out of range. Um, hair loss, everything is the same. Um, they said, Madam, you must give up wheat. She said, I did give up wheat. They said, completely? Yes, com well, well, you know, well, well, yeah, I had a piece of cake last month and maybe there were some croutons on the salad a couple weeks ago. No, 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 you must give it up completely. Okay, okay. So she gives it up completely. She comes back a year later to the specialty clinic um, her energy's up a little bit, the hair loss has stopped, but the osteoporosis is still there. Her blood values are not sky high, they're now just high normal or just over into the high range, but not way, way out of range. And when they do the endoscopy, she still has total villus atrophy, Berber. Madam, you must give up wheat. I did give up wheat. Completely? Completely. And they screened her, and yes, she had given it up completely. And they were scratching their heads, they're about to call it refractory sprue which is a really good Scrabble word, which means we don't know why you've got it. And then a really smart doc said, Madam, are you a religious woman? And she was a nun in street clothes. And it was the host. It was the communion wafer. Madam, you must give up the wafer. I will not. God will not allow it. Then we can't help you. Sorry. She left. So the researchers went to the church and they asked the priest for a piece of, you know, the host, the way that he usually breaks it and gives it to people. And they measured how much gluten is in um, um, a piece of the host, the average. And the average is a milligram. Now, how much is a milligram? Cut your thumbnail in half. Cut it in half again. That's a quarter. Cut it in half again. That's an eighth. Cut it in half again. A sixteenth. It's a sixteenth of a thumbnail. Another way of saying is one ninetieth. That's nine zero. One ninetieth of a slice of bread. That's all it takes to keep you in Berber, total villus atrophy, osteoporosis, high risk of, of small intestine cancer called lymphoma, and um, unbeknownst to them, the nun, the, the bishop made her give up the, the wafer.
She came back a year and a half later, she was radiant. Radiant, full of energy, looked, looked really gorgeous, just um, vibrant, dynamic, uh, hair loss had stopped, energy was up, osteoporosis was gone, completely gone, blood tests were all low normal, endoscopy completely normal. It was the wafer that kept her with total villus atrophy. You can't have any. You, you can't be a little pregnant. You can't have any if you're a celiac. I tell you what, Dr. O'Brien, Sean Croxon's right. You are one smart dude. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, thank you. Dr. O'Brien, just uh, just closing up now, what can people do who suspect they have gluten sensitivity? Can they contact Cytrex uh, Labs? Can people from Europe uh, get lab tests for them? Uh, not yet. Um, there are plans for um, um, the test to be available in Europe, uh, in Australia, mm -hmm. uh, in South America, uh, but the lab is currently, you know, they've been open for a year and there's been such a demand and they're um, really doing a fabulous job, but it is on the development block mm -hmm. to get over there. At this point, I have patients uh, from London, uh, uh, Britain, South America, Brazil, um, they fly up to the U.S. and you can get the test done anywhere in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ideal is to have your doctor open an account and order the test for you. Yeah. Uh, but if not, uh, some people um, they've they've been able to get the test done by going through my website. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they they would need to go to America to get it done. They couldn't send send it over from. Like Ireland or that's or correct. Okay. Okay. That's correct. There, there, there is no protocol currently in place to do that. Okay. Okay. Um, Doctor Tom, can you just give people uh, more information? Your website, uh, any upcoming uh, seminars, even if they are in the US, uh, any plans to travel to Europe, uh, UK, or Australia? Yes. Well, I'll be in the UK in March, um, and my website has listings. Um, uh, I'm a little slow in getting them up there, but my, my website has listings of where I'm speaking in 2012. The website's thedoctor.com, and I think there's a tab there that says where in the world is Dr. Tom, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so uh, you can find out uh, the locations I'm speaking at. I, I really don't know. You know, you get scheduled months and months in advance. I don't know where I'm going to be. I just look at the calendar and say, oh, I guess I'm going to Atlanta today. <laughs> uh, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to carry this message out. Is there is there is there any certain places on the map you go? Oh no, not this place again. <laughs> uh, well, as you asked the question, uh, uh, I guess South Dakota would be a place that I would think of like that. Because in my seminar, the doctors walk in with beers at nine in the morning. Oh, for God's <laughs> sake! I was like, what? Even 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 the doctors here in Ireland aren't that bad, Doctor Tom. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, Dr. Tom, that's, that's just, that interview blew my mind. And I've listened to your interview, your, both your interviews with Sean Croxon and watched half of your, 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 uh, the first half of your DVDs so far. Oh, just on your DVDs, can you just mention the, the two DVD products that you have for the people listening? Yes, thank you. Um, uh, the first DVD, uh, Unlocking the Mysteries of Gluten Sensitivity, is... Um, it. What would happen is that mom would bring little Johnny into the office. I'd run my test, test come back, Johnny's gluten sensitive, a celiac. Mm -hmm. So um, they'd come back for their report, I'd sit down and talk to them, I'd look them in the eye, I'd tell them about the studies, they go, oh my God, this makes so much sense. 
and you know, tell them, all right, good, so you're gluten-free now, and work with my nutritionist to um, learn how to do it so that you're not having to reinvent the wheel. They go home, and Dad comes home from work and says, what did the doctor say? And little Johnny starts crying, saying, Dad, I can't have pizza anymore. I guess I can have something, but I can't eat pizza with my friends. I've got to bring my own. You know. And Dad, of course, protects his son, says, what do you mean you can't have pizza? What's wrong with bread? It's the staff of life. It's in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Right? So um, he has no idea about this. So I did a uh, uh, seminar, and I had it professionally videoed. It's two and a half hours of my talking about this topic with 62 different studies and the pictures of what it looks like when there's hypoperfusion, not enough blood in the brain, what it looks like when there's inflammation in the muscles. I explain it in detail. Then my friend Susan Vess, a nutritionist, comes on and she talks about how do you live a gluten-free life. So the DVD was put together specifically so that mom can take it home and say "Dad, to dad, we're going to watch this DVD together. And then dad gets it and the whole family's on board. That's the first one. The second one is my it's a three DVD set that is my seven hour full presentation on gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and when doctors watch this uh, doctors nutritionists acupuncturists or they attend the seminar or they watch it and they pass the test then they're listed on my site as a certified gluten practitioner and um, it's there because people have been reaching out to me for a year now saying who in my area knows about this? Who knows about this? And so we do this service so people can just find out who's in your area uh, that might, who might be in your area that knows about this. So that's the seven-hour DVD. Anyone can order either one of those or both of them. Um, you have to be a healthcare practitioner to be listed as a certified gluten practitioner, uh, but that includes nutritionists and acupuncturists, mm -hmm. osteopaths, chiropractors, medical doctors. Mm -hmm and nurses, and nurses. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tom, that's absolutely been brilliant. Your website again is thededoctor.com. Yes, the dr.com. How, how did you get that? How did no one else have that taken? <laughs> it was a gift from God. <laughs> I think on that note, we'll leave it. Guys, thanks for listening. That was an absolutely brilliant interview. I want to thank Dr. Tom again. We may have him back on um, if, if uh, for, uh, for an answers and questions session if, if he'd come back on. Um, I just, again, want to thank you, Dr. Tom. That was absolutely brilliant. Guys, I will talk to you next time. Take care.